Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Every person has a story to tell, and this podcast hopes to give an opportunity for those in the sport world to share their unique story. Each week, I interview a new guest to come on the show, and we talk about how they got to where they are in the sport world, what their daily life looks like, some misconceptions people have about their role, and we end with a fun rapid-fire segment to close the episode. If that sounds like something for you, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by The Pocket AT. Ever want to have your health-related questions answered whenever you have them? Look no further than The Pocket AT. It is like having an athletic therapist with you 24-7. It's a free informational hub that provides you everything you need to know about your health, including rehabilitative exercises, advanced sports-specific exercises, proper ways to stretch and foam roll, mobility exercises, nutrition, and a bi-weekly blog that discusses the most commonly asked questions to practitioners. Check out their content on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at The Pocket AT, and on their website at pocketat.com. Now with all that done, let's go. Welcome to episode 18 of the podcast. Today's guest is Dylan Freechild. Dylan plays for the elite level club ultimate team Seattle Sockeye and has competed for Team USA on the world stage. He was named Ulti World's Player of the Year in 2019 and was recently named the number one men's player by Ulti World's composite rankings. He previously played for Portland Rhino and the University of Oregon, where he won the Callahan Award as the top men's college player in 2013 and was named Oregon's Club Athlete of the Year in 2014. He participated in all three years of the Next Gen Ultimate Tour, where top college ultimate players would play against the top club teams in North America. He has many accomplishments on the ultimate field, including a 2008 Mixed Youth Club Championship gold medal, High School Westerns gold medal in 2010, a 2010 Junior Worlds gold medal, a 2015 USA College Championship silver medal, a 2016 World Ultimate and Guts Championship gold medal, a 2017 World Games gold medal, and a 2019 Men's Club Championship. He is currently finishing his political science degree at the University of Oregon and currently resides in Eugene. Here is my interview with Dylan Freechild. So I'm here with Dylan Freechild. Dylan, how are you doing today? Good. Yeah, nice day outside. Get back from work, so easy living. <laughs> I know there's no ultimate right now, so you're kind of just uh, hanging out, eh? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I go to work and come home and toss a little bit with my roommate and, and a few other Oregon guys. But yeah, no, no, no structured frisbee. Yeah, it's unfortunate right now with uh, COVID nineteen and all that. But we're gonna jump right into segment one here. Your journey. Can you tell the audience how you got started in Ultimate and sort of who are some people that were really instrumental into getting where you are with Ultimate frisbee? Yeah, uh, I started playing organized Ultimate in uh, eighth grade, the fall of eighth grade. I knew the sport previously because I had played with a group of guys down in Ashland, Oregon, um, where I'm from, who worked for my dad. They all played ultimate in their downtime, but it was a little bit different. We would throw the disc into the soccer goal. You'd have to catch it in the soccer goal. Kind of dangerous now if you think about it. The precursor to goal ultimate or something, <laughs> or mini. <laughs> exactly. You'd throw it into the soccer goal and so I'd be standing in it. So it's actually kind of tough to score, but I was six or seven. So that's how I learned about Ultimate and, you know, I loved it and I loved tossing the disc and it was always in the back of my mind. And then Luke Johnson, who is the owner of Fulcrum, who does all the AUDL stuff and works with USAU for other semifinal streams and whatnot, was a youth pastor here in Eugene. He started the middle school program at Kennedy, where a few guys who I played with at Oregon went to and then started the youth program at Roosevelt. So those are the two middle school teams in Eugene. So we only had one opponent to play. So it became a fierce rivalry. (laughs) Long story short, my buddy Aaron, who was in Luke's youth group, was also in my homeroom in middle school. So he invited me, told me that there was a new sport in town, a new a new club to join at, at Roosevelt Middle School. And since I'd already knew about the sport, I, uh, I, was, I was stoked to go try it out because at that point I was playing club soccer, was pretty over club soccer. Sounds good. And then, so after middle school, you uh, were you focused on other sports in high school or are you kind of just focusing on ultimate? Mostly focusing on ultimate. I, I, like I said, I played club soccer. I, I did travel soccer. I was, I was decent. I was athletic. I was mildly committed. But there, there are kids who are just a lot more talented than I. 
And so I was drawn to ultimate because there's a lot less practice time. Soccer coach was kind of, kind of a hard ass. It took up a lot of my time and I didn't necessarily know if I loved it. A lot of my friends didn't play. So it's not like I had a group of best friends playing soccer. I kind of did it on the side of my kind of social group. So yeah, ultimate was cool. I was good at it initially. Like I said, my buddy Aaron played, I had another buddy played. So I already had some guys in my group of friends who were doing it as opposed to soccer. And I figured soccer felt like a lot of work. Probably could have made the high school team, but it, it, it just felt like something that was going to be stress inducing or scary or make me anxious. And I was, you know, in hindsight, now that I think about it, I wish I would have given it a try because I shouldn't be afraid of those opportunities to kind of be vulnerable and work a little bit harder. But I took the easy out, which was ultimate. And then I ended up practicing and spending more money and, <laughs> and, and, and spending more time playing ultimate than I would have, you know, playing soccer. So that's kind of the funny story of it. But yeah, so I, I played only ultimate in high school. I quit basketball. South didn't have a coach. So it was kind of peer led. Jacob Jannon played soccer with me, coached the middle school team when he was in high school. And then he was my co-captain in high school. He's two years older than me. And then he graduated. And then I kind of uh, led the team until my senior year when we had a coach. But that was kind of the fun experience of, of high school ultimate back in the day. It's come so far in the last 10 years that kids probably don't realize that it used to be peer led. And even, well, at least in Canada, a lot of the um, university programs are still mostly peer led. Like there are some Definitely some coach teams, but it's um, definitely not the same. I know in, in certain parts of uh, the states, it's the youth scene's huge, right? Coaches everywhere. So that's awesome that that's happening. It's wild to think about now. And I think it allows the sport to reach more people, having, you know, administrators and coaches and, and leagues and, you know, umbrella organizations. But it does kind of leave a little bit to be desired as far as like, yeah, just the feeling of what it used to be like, you know, when all of us started playing ultimate 10 or 15 years ago and you know old timers say that to me when i was when i was 16 and 20 there they were talking about how they would go whatever they did in the 90s which i can't even imagine but yeah it loses that little bit of camaraderie where it was like 10 high school kids and somehow we convinced our parents to let us all drive a, a van to portland to play like a high school team that wasn't our local crosstown rival which just seems crazy now but that kind of is the reason why i think that, that generation my generation and the generation before me early 2000s were and are so hooked because it was so much more of a lifestyle whereas now it's you know still is and there's still that ethos ultimate but there also is that idea of like you go to ultimate practice and then your mom picks you up and then you have your coach who you're in contact with it's very regimented now for sure like lots of legalities involved and things like that definitely and, and probably for the better but uh there is that little certain bit that i think is special to the late 90s and and early mid 2000s yeah, it sounds like you're missing the good old days. You sound like uh, someone who's like maybe 50, uh, living, reliving the past. <laughs> I'm about to be 30 next year. So, you know, my, my, my last 29 was, or my last year of 20s was stolen by COVID. So I was just yeah, texting Jimmy today. It's his birthday. And I was texting with him and telling him that we'll be 30 next time we compete. No, that's good. And uh, so I'll bring you back to some youthful days. I'm back in the university. So you're graduating high school. Did you have other school options you wanted to go to or you kind of just chose Oregon? Was that just ultimate related or, or uh, you like the program or what was it? <laughs> well, I'm a big Duck fan. Like I said, I was born in Southern Oregon, but I grew up in Eugene. It was hard to envision playing for a team that wasn't, wasn't Oregon. But I did, you know, I, I thought about Colorado. I thought about Pitt. Those are two places that I knew had good ultimate programs and I knew people there. I knew Jimmy. I knew Alex Thorne. Uh, they seemed like fun places to go potentially out of high school. I'm not nearly as attracted to Pittsburgh as I maybe thought I would have been, but out-of-state tuition wasn't really going to be a thing for me anyways. It was kind of just to dabble and see if I could get in and see if I could possibly travel out of Oregon. But no, it, it was kind of always going to be always going to be Oregon and probably wouldn't have gone to school if I didn't have ultimate eligibility that was going to wither away and, and never come back. And so I knew I had to I had to go to school and I'm not... I'm not big on school, uh, but I attended it so that I could play ultimate. And yeah, so there I was coached by Jacob's dad, Jay Jannon, who's been with Oregon for 11 years now. Um, legend, legend. A legend. He's a great dude. He's a, you know, a Waldorf family, Waldorf dad. Um, I, went, I, I went to Waldorf school for a little bit growing up. So that's also how I know the Jannon. So I've actually known Jay and Jacob for a long time, you know, 20 years, uh, because Jacob's older brother was in my brother's class. Maybe they're a year apart, but um. Yeah, so he's been around, just a classic Eugene dude, and played a lot of ultimate in his day through the 90s, and I, I remember playing pickup against him when I was a youth player, and he was maybe 
just outside of Masters range. Um, I know he played one more year when Jacob went to Nationals. He played one more year of Masters so they could go together. But yeah, he, he, he picked up the coaching job more as a way to hang out with Eli Jan and the older brother. Um, and then it kind of stuck. And, you know, I think he was, I don't want to say he was one of the first. There were plenty of coaches in the early and mid 2000s, but he was still part of that first wave of dudes who played Elite Ultimate in the 90s and then kind of transitioned to being a coach. And now every college program has one. The program definitely owes him a lot for keeping it stable and keeping it relevant. And uh, for those that might not know, can you summarize sort of your time at Oregon? Like how it was for you personally, just in your development and growth as a player? Jay is a very player first coach. That could be kind of a knock on his coaching style, but also it's a it's a big it's a big value too. What I mean is like, you know, other coaches have their game plan that they want their players to execute, and other coaches hold certain standards for the program and and what you're expected to do and not do. And you know, obviously those expectations were there in the heart, and you know, the heavy hand was there as well. But you know, his biggest thing in the preseason meetings was always that he was going to be as into the team as the players were. So he didn't lead in that way where he, he didn't pull college kids along saying like, this is we're, we're going to practice three times a week. We're going to have a workout. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to have film study. We're going to make sure we meet these metrics, completion percentage, whatever it might be. He kind of allowed us to shape what we wanted the team to be. And so that's, that's good and bad bad in that college kids can be inconsistent and not level-headed and you know go out and party the night before practice or turn you know whatever it might be but I think it also create put a lot of agency and power into the players hands to to make the program what we wanted it to be and I think there have been down years in in his tenureship in the 12 years I think he's coached there's been down years but there have also been really strong pockets of players who have, who have made the team what they want. And, and he's true to his word. You know, if we wanted to add a practice throughout the week, he'd move around his work schedule and, and whatnot wow. and, ma- and make it happen. Uh, but just kind of the idea that it was, it was on us. So for me as a player, that was, that was huge. I had to, you know, make sure that I was really going after something that I wanted. I uh, wasn't being pulled, wasn't being pushed, wasn't being told how to do it. It helped me grow on and off the field. And uh, it also it also meant that I was committing to a lot more, whether it's one or two captain's meetings throughout the week, whether it's going and throwing with, with the uh, underclassmen or setting workouts. That was kind of all on us to bring to him. And then he would kind of instill that uh, leadership or that uh, final voice of a, of a head coach who, who, can kind of, <laughs> yeah. who, who can kind of talk to people in ways that your peers can't talk to and implement systems and and tell people what their roles are. You can't really do that with your with your buddy necessarily. For sure. And as I mentioned in the bio, you did play for uh, Rhino for for many years. You were playing Rhino while you're in university as well, right? So how did that impact your development? So obviously the club and college season are offset. I played my freshman year. Played with two buddies. One of that actually Aaron, who got me into ultimate. He was in high school. So he played my first year, which is crazy. He's a crazy athlete. And then another buddy of mine from Oregon. We were the only three. And then the next year there was two of us. And then it, it started to grow because people started to recognize that um, there was, you know, a small contingent of people who wanted to drive up from Eugene and play. But I credit playing Club Ultimate throughout college a lot to why I developed more quickly than others. Ultimate is getting to the point now where film watching and working out and you know weight training and whatever else there might be besides just playing ultimate i wouldn't say it's to the point where it's necessarily a must to be successful in the sport but definitely to compete at the highest level consistently um and with the guys that you want to compete against like it's more normalized for sure than it would have been like let's say in the early 2000s yeah well, more more normalized and more more needed more of a necessity mm-hmm. people are just going to kind of leave you in the dust and coaches and players are going to figure out strategy and back in 2010 11 12 when i was playing rhino or 11 12 13 14 i still think reps you know just getting as many reps as you could playing and so for me that was playing college from september to may and then club from a little overlap from like april to october just helped me grow a lot of course competing against men you know i'm 18 years old and then i'm playing against people who are 32 those guys are fully developed and fully committed and the game's faster and so i I do think that participating in club ultimate certainly um, contributed to my ability to compete in college in a way that just working out or playing pickup with throughout the summer with the college guys um, would not have 
And you were in the the documentary Chasing Sarasota, is that correct? I was. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh I will admit that's one of my favorite documentaries to watch, even though I know it doesn't go uh it doesn't go Rhino's way, but it's a really well done documentary. So uh if you haven't had a chance to watch it and you're listening, I uh, recommend it. Even though it doesn't go your way, Dylan. It it no, it doesn't, and it's it's spoiler. <laughs> it ends up being a good story anyways. That was a, a bummer and um you know, we were a really good team in twenty eleven. Surprisingly, Seth Wiggins came back and he helped a lot with leadership, picked up a few guys and a few younger guys, like I said, my buddy Ian and Aaron and myself. And yeah, we were poised. We, were, we, we beat soccer that year for the first time in eons and we made the regional final back when Revolver was still there. And Yeah, that's a crazy uh, region just to have. A, <laughs> you have a soccer, you had Furious and you had Revolver sort of in that pocket there. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't go our way. You know, it kind of set the stage for 2012, I think. Obviously, Rhino underperformed in 2012. Shocker, Rhino's had a history of underperforming at Nationals until this year. Um, yeah, big shout out. Yeah, that was awesome. And uh, yeah, but I still think we were one, you know, I think we were one of the best eight teams, um, which some teams might scoff at. You know, eight, eight's, eight's not that high, but to be a consistent <laughs> quarters team, I think is is what Rhino had always been shooting for when I was when I was there and when I was captain was hoping to be like, if we could just be a consistent quarters team, then we might be able to break through. But I think in 2012, that was that had never been truer. We were a really good team. And uh, I think that 2011 kind of really set the stage for that. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Next Gen now. So that was a kind of a novel idea at the time, just getting a bunch of college all-stars playing some top club ultimate teams. So what was that like playing against not not just with some really good players like a Jimmy Mickle, for example, but you're also playing against these like top club um, athletes like night in, night out in the summer? Yeah, Next Gen. I think the biggest thing Next Gen did was like, so if, if playing Rhino got me a bunch of reps and got me playing against better athletes and uh, in a faster game next gen i got to play with new people so you know all the oregon guys play a similar game and you can kind of see it in all the guys who still play club so i i think going on the tour allowed me to play with people who come from different systems who have a different idea of what ultimate is or how it should be played or even down to like how they throw or cut it might be taught differently um, by their coaches playing against all those teams in such a short amount of time i mean i'd played clubs so i'd played against other teams that have different that give you different looks but uh, when you do it in 30 days and you're playing against all those guys with new folks it's just like it it compounds on itself and you just have so many different revelations about how to how to play the game so it, it was always fun coming back from those tours and feeling like i added so much to not only my ability to play but my ability to see and what i could bring to oregon that was new that wasn't you know there the year before i think that that is a reason why the group of guys who are my generation are a so talented and b so community driven is i think next gen has a lot to do with it and uh you know whether it's simon or raider or trent who i have the privilege of playing with on sockeye jimmy or alex thorne or you know any of these guys um nick lance george Stubbs. yeah there, there's a certain amount of culture that i think we bring with each other because of our experience on next gen and i think it contributes a lot uh, on the larger scale at least in the men's division so yeah no i think next gen was was an incredible thing for ultimate in general the men's game specifically but you know on and off the field it, d- it did more than i think people realize and well it helps jumpstart a lot of that live ultimate that we started to see when they started producing things for for college nationals and things like that so that is definitely cool. And the last thing we'll talk about kind of here is you stop playing for Rhino. You end up playing for Seattle Sockeye. So can you, if you're able to go through what kind of your thought process was changing teams because you had been playing in the Oregon scene? It's an interesting story. And of course, it's my side of the story. And there might be other people who feel otherwise differently. So up to about, let's see. So 2016 was my last year on Rhino. Um, there was a pro team MLU for Portland, the Stags, who was having decent success. They made the finals, I think, in 2015 or maybe maybe 2016 um, and lost to Philadelphia. But I know they had made the playoffs multiple years and it was cool. Portland was finally having a little bit of success in the club slash adult scene. A lot of the guys who played Rhino obviously enjoyed, but also felt like it was making them better ultimate players. I had my own time with the Roughnecks, so I didn't necessarily have an issue with, with guys playing both Rhino, Rhino and Stags. But it kind of got to a point where I, I felt like 
to be successful, you really can only focus on one endeavor, one team or the other. And so I got to the point where I felt like we should prioritize Rhino and, and say, you know, if there's a Stags game on an off weekend, sure, go play. I'm not going to say you can't have different playing opportunities, but if there's a double header practice weekend, I find that to be more important than uh, MLU game, even though some people might think a game is more important than a practice weekend. Anywho, so that's kind of the, the idea behind what started the separation between myself and Rhino. What then happened was I kind of steamrolled into this idea with, with Jacob. Jacob and I had both been captaining for three years, pretty much unanimously. We, we kind of captained the team and came up with a lot of strategy and created the roster. And we had some success here and there. We had success in 2014. We beat Sockeye. 2015 was a pretty bad year, pretty bad nationals. A great year. We went to pro flight and did, did pretty well. And then we didn't make it in 2016. And that was kind of when things came into question, like, what are we doing wrong? How can we have two successful years ramping up and then have the same roster and kind of fizzle out at regionals? So it kind of just came to our attention that there were things that elite ultimate teams do to continue to be successful that isn't just about having good players. Like, what boxes are you checking off that keep you a consistent program, regardless of the players on your team? And then having good players who have been there for five, six, seven years who have played together is kind of the cherry on top. And so I kind of just came to the conclusion that there were things that Rhino just wasn't doing. And we were we were the best team in Portland, the best team in Oregon, uh, by virtue of having the best players, not because we were doing what we needed to be doing to be successful, in my opinion. So what kind of happened was Jacob and I created, we kind of had a meeting. This is where I take some of the fault. Is We, have, we had a meeting where it was kind of like we weren't fielding questions or fielding concerns. We were kind of just saying, if you wanted us to be captains again, which for the last three years we had been, like I said, pretty unanimously, that we were going to start leading this way with these expectations, doing these certain things. Um, and if you didn't want that, then other people would have to step up to be captain. Not very many folks had stepped up in recent years. Ugh, I don't want to call it an ultimatum, but I, I suppose it was. And now I kind of regret that. But just the idea that if you want us in charge, we're going to, we're happy to do it, but this is the direction we're going to take it. Long story short, that didn't work out. That wasn't necessarily received very well. And I'll definitely, <laughs> definitely take some of the blame on that. And then um, folks really wanted, thought that there was a good opportunity to have to leverage kind of the pro ultimate resources and bring other guys in and recruit some people who were turned off by Rhino. Initially, there were some players who played for Stags who were really good ultimate players who hadn't been playing Rhino for whatever reason. So there were definitely some pros to combining. More or less, I think that idea kind of won out. I think the turnoff of the ultimatum-esque proposal mixed with the success in the pro leagues and the opportunity to kind of grow a different culture was what, what more people wanted. And that was fine. I, my, I'd always planned on playing Rhino if people had said no. I had just not planned on captaining. I was going to allow others to step up and do it. But yeah, it kind of just got to the point uh, where I realized that it was going to be difficult to play for a team with teammates who didn't see necessarily the path to success or see all that as as important as I saw it, maybe. I don't know. It felt like it was going to be hard to compete side by side with folks who maybe looked at Ultimate in a different way. That's not to say it was irreconcilable differences. I'm still friends with plenty of the, plenty of those guys. Yeah, and I, it's not like you're divorced or something. No, I mean I'm 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 friends with plenty of those guys, and a lot of those guys won and had plenty of success. And you know, obviously, if you're on a team, you have to learn how to how to balance all the differences and 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 make a, a culture that everyone can tap into and feel successful. And so that's not to say that well, I don't make sacrifices and and those teammates don't make sacrifices, but it just it just felt like it was going to be a weird building stepping down from captaining for three years and having the pro team and, and these differences. And so it seemed like a good opportunity to play, play for a different team. Sockeye is the closest team. I grew up hating Sockeye and always brought a lot of that energy to games against Sockeye. Not that I'm necessarily proud of it, but I also had a lot of good battles against them. So I don't regret it either. So that was kind of a, a tough pill to swallow to go play for uh, that team that I had previously had so much disdain for. But the team was also different. Uh, a lot of the older guys who played for Rhino when they're winning, and or sorry, for Sockeye when they're winning and when they're competitive and when they're kind of beating Rhino to a pulp were leaving. A lot of the leaders on the team were Matt Rader and Trent and Simon. I've named them a few times. Uh, I all played next gen with, and they were, they were starting to get, become the, the older guys on the team. Trent was a captain the year that I joined, even though it was only his second year. So, yeah, so it just felt like a new opportunity to join a team that um, would give me a new learning opportunity, give me a, a space to grow as a player. I didn't have to, I wasn't going to be a captain for the first time in, you know, like six seasons if you count college and club. And that's kind of where it went. And so I joined Sockeye. And oddly enough, the MLU team in Portland folded. So then there was no 
pro club <laughs> tandem duo thing. I think it was more about wanting to play for a team that was checking off those boxes, what it means to be an elite team. It wasn't necessarily about winning more or having a chance to win a championship, which I think a lot of folks think is the root of the of the decision to go, whether those folks believe me or not that that wasn't necessarily actually the reason the reason was wanting to compete honestly and earnestly um, in ways that i thought were going to be the most fulfilling coincidentally those ways lead to winning obviously and that was what i was trying to get rhino to realize or adhere to but they've historically been good at winning so you know i will get scrutinized for joining the the older brother who uh who obviously had a path forward to success that i was able to join but um you know, my, my 2017 and 2018 years with Sockeye where we didn't win were just as um, successful in my mind as, as the year that we did win this year. So that is what it is. Appreciate you sharing that. And last question here. Uh, we talked a lot about your journey, though, but for those who are trying to reach that elite club level, be it in Canada, the States, wherever they are, uh, what's the advice you would give them? I say it all the time and maybe it's starting to become tired because it takes more than this. And maybe I just got lucky in the era that I joined, but mm-hmm. you ha- you just have to play. You have to play, you have to seek out playing opportunities um, in different roles. So whether you're the best player on the, I think it's important to get reps where you're the best player on the team and you have a lot of pressure on you and you have to handle, you know, you have to handle a lot of the, the weight of distributing the disc, but then also, you know, being a fill cutter, being a guy who just goes out and gets it on D, like you need to join teams and have playing opportunities where you aren't that. Um, and then you need to play in different areas. And obviously I've had the, the blessing to play next gen and whatnot. Uh, obviously you need to commit to being physically healthy and, and strong, but that kind of feels, I feel like that kind of comes when you want to kind of get to the tippity tippity top or you're competing against a certain group of 10 to 15 guys who are seen throughout the years as like the top of the top. And then that kind of comes into play with who's, who's working off the field more, but to get just to the elite club level and be a contributor on it, on, on one of the 16 teams that goes to nationals, that's a lot of ultimate players. Certainly some guys prioritize it differently. And so really, like I said, yeah, get, getting a variety of both in your role, but the people you play with, I think is the most important thing. Obviously that's difficult to say that's the only advice because some people grow up in areas where they don't have a great youth scene or a great club team or, or there's a one club team, but they haven't done a good enough job of creating a development team. That's not entirely fair, but what I did do as a youth player was, was exactly that though. I mean, like I, I, I had Luke who, who made the, the youth teams at Roosevelt and Kennedy, but then I also played on teams with those kids from Kennedy. So like my first experience playing with other all-stars was like Roosevelt and Kennedy created a mixed middle school team. And then you go, you move on to high school and, you know, there's a local city league tournament in Eugene or summer solstice. There's a, there's a league division and there's an elite division actually, uh, which used to be pretty big. But then I played with Seattle kids. Seattle, I'd invite the Seattle kids to come down and we'd all have a weekend of it and we'd they'd sleep over and so just kind of creating opportunity i i went and filmed rhino in 2007 at nationals so you know get a taste of elite ultimate just watching it um obviously not everyone has the ability to afford a ticket to florida to go watch just kind of immersing myself in ultimate was what i did and it wasn't even with the intention of becoming a, a good club player it was just the intention of wanting to accelerate and be as good as i could and obviously the track is different now now that the, the level's been raised a little bit you know, I thought about it when I went to college, but now it's even, even more people even think about it now. And now there's more strength training. I mean, there's GPP college programs. So kids are doing strength training. I mean, there were, there were people lifting in college when I was playing, but now it's a strength training program. And so, you know, asking me is like, is probably a little bit unfair for kids who are starting to play now. The path is probably a little bit different mm-hmm. and maybe, and maybe slightly harder. That's kind of the nature of um, a growing sport. Yeah, for sure. Definitely having more athletes uh, and top athletes joining, right? Even transplants from other sports, as we've seen as well. But we're going to move into uh, segment two here. Can you talk a little bit about what your life is like kind of balancing work and then playing at the elite club level, you know, practices, tournaments on the weekend? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, and I'll just link this back to the last question, which is, you know, I, I build my life around ultimate and you can be successful there are plenty of people actually ultimate is, you know, for better or worse, you know, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of talk going around about the, the type of people who play ultimate who happen to be college educated, you know, upper middle class, privileged, white, 
So there are a lot of smart, successful people off the field who play ultimate. You can be a good ultimate player and great ultimate player and not necessarily build your life around ultimate. However, I think I've got to this point because I have really tailored what I do around playing ultimate. So, you know, I've worked in the service industry forever. I can kind of come and go as I please and make my own schedule. You know, I moved to Dallas for six months. That was not that hard, but a mildly tough conversation with my girlfriend. Like, well, I'm going to I'm going to go play a semi pro ultimate Frisbee in Dallas, Texas. Trust me, it'll pay off in the end. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, I mean, she didn't go with you, right? <laughs> she didn't go with me, but she supported me the whole time. I moved to Seattle this last year because I played sockeye for two years traveling from Portland. And I felt like I wasn't I wasn't a getting the most out of it, but B, I wasn't making the team as good as it could be because I was a travel player. So I moved and just slept in someone's dining room for six months. But I've tailored my life around that. And so that is all to say to answer your question, which is, yeah, I've worked service. So to play Elite Ultimate for me has been grind in the evenings. I you know, work four or five evenings, done fine dining. I've, I've bartended a little bit. I've worked in just kind of like a gastro pub in Portland. And I can take four days off and go go to Seattle and have a practice weekend, an eight-hour practice weekend. Um, and then gives me the ability to work out in the mornings and then go to work at you know 3 p.m. where a lot of people have their, their 9 to 5 or 8 to 4 or whatever they're doing. And they have to either choose to get up early or they have to do it after work. Currently, during the pandemic, I work in a warehouse. So it is more of a 9 to 5. It's the first time I've ever done that. But it still gives me the flexibility to leave when I want. You know, it's changed a little bit. Now I get home at 4.30 and I have to somehow figure out how to muster up the energy to work out. I work with Mike Haddock, who's the guy who does all of Team Canada. I've had him on the pod, so he's a he's a friend of mine. So I had him on the podcast already. Nice. Yeah, no, Mike is amazing. And I would encourage anyone who wants to work uh, one-on-one with someone to go to Mike. I know there's a lot of great resources out there right now. And I adore Mike. I think he's great. Uh, one-on-one with players. I think he truly cares about the success of his athletes. Yeah, he's awesome. Anyway, that's all to say uh, I'm lucky enough to have him tailoring my workout. So, you know, I'm I'm doing strength stuff two to three times a week, kind of depending if I feel like doing a third one. I think he'd probably rather have me be out moving, whether that's, you know, on the turf or doing agility workout or running. But, you know, it's, it's still not too much. It's It's three times a week, maybe four times a week if I'm if I knew that there was a season coming up and then on the <laughs> off days, of course, I'm, I'm doing a little active recovery or I'm doing PT or I'm going to go throw for an hour. So I'm doing something close to every day. Um, but really like, you know, tough, hard work for an hour and a half club ultimate, at least in P- Portland and Seattle are usually double weekends, eight hours every, every week. And then there's usually a, a Wednesday pod of Seattle. So like an hour and a half. So that makes 10 hours of practice mixed in with what you're doing. It sounds like a lot, but you know, if it's if it's what you do to a stay in shape, b socialize, c have fun, you know, those are three things that take up a lot of time for other people. Packaged on one. Yeah, for sure. And your uh, your main interest, so it makes sense. Can you just walk the audience through what nationals looks like? So, sort of, what does that tournament look like? Because your college nationals obviously looks a little bit different than club nationals, but uh, let's talk a little bit about club nationals. What does that look like? Kind of get into the hotel you know the, the night before or two nights before what does that look like yeah i usually arrive two days beforehand I, I just am like a kid on christmas it's exciting for me people obviously can't take off work necessarily i usually can and so yeah i arrive two days early the next day there'll be a group of guys there usually half the team so they'll still be there a day obviously they're not showing up you know at like 10 p.m the night before a game they, they've already been there for a day but yeah so we'll throw and and kind of go run around and get a feel i always go to the field and get a sense of what it's going to be like and then nationals is crazy because it's still fewer than than normal they're more widely spaced out if you're used to playing you know backyard club ultimate or college ultimate you're playing maybe four and you're playing it during the fall and so it gets dark early and they're all crammed until you know a five hour time yeah. span it's wild. You have all the space in the world. You have huge sidelines and nice fields. And so it just makes you feel like you have, yeah, the freedom to really compete at your highest in just a given, in a given moment. So if you make it past quarters, it's a game of day and it starts to feel a little bit more like the AUDL or MLU or PUL or WUL, yeah. Where it's, you know, a one-off game. There's a certain intangible feeling to, to those games that are extra special. 
in between um, not just the games, but like the day, do you have a team meeting at all? Like you're getting food right away, probably. What's the team stretch routine? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, you cool down. Everyone has a group that they're in with cars. So kind of cars do their own thing. So that way you can make decisions of five people instead of 30 people. Yeah, Um, makes sense. I've found that anytime you try to make decisions with 30 people, especially headstrong ultimate players, doesn't work out. So I think divide and conquer when it comes to recovery and focus. I think when you're on a team that is looking to ultimately win, people trust that everyone's doing what they need to be doing to be successful. So the micromanagement isn't quite as heavy as it might be. And what I've experienced on teams that are like almost there or, or mid-tier feel like there's a little bit more of that hand-holding, which I think can actually be detrimental to a team's success in some ways. You kind of go out and you find your own you find your own food. You decide, are you going to go back to the house or, the, or hotel? If you have a hotel, are you going to go back to the fields and sit in the shade and and because you don't want to go take a cat nap? Some people don't like waking up groggy. Some people don't want to be outside. So you kind of just figure it out. But um, I personally like to, I have a hard time eating after I play. So I usually go back to the house and lounge around and then try and get food at least moderately quickly. I am a cat napper personally, so I'd love to go lie down. Some people will just stay at the fields and, and keep the energy up and sit in the shade and hydrate and, you know, watch Riot or watch whatever good game is going on or scout somebody. I know some people are scared of that sleep for a half hour and then wake up and and then when the day ends, are you having um, like any sort of scouting or video sessions at night or in the morning before games or that's you kind of do that weeks before? Um, we usually do that weeks before. And, you know, we have coaches on, on Sakai who do that. We have a defensive committee who might watch some tape of our new opponent, like quarters or if it was going to be pre-quarters or semis. Mm-hmm. But we already know who's in our pool a few weeks beforehand. So uh, we'll go over defensive notes and we'll go over um, how we kind of want to attack a game the night before as a refresher. But we've usually done some of those run-throughs at practice where, you know, one team is trying to play as a certain opponent so our defense can get a different look and then vice versa. So our offense can get a specific look, more of a refresher. And then, yeah, when we get to games where we have a new opponent that we weren't necessarily expecting or didn't know who's going to be, then there's some there's some film watching. That's where you know the captains and the coaches will stay at the fields and kind of take one for the team. And then some of the committee members or the coaches primarily will stay up late and watch. And then we might actually talk about it in the morning and debrief in the morning, so people aren't waiting to stay up and so the coaches don't feel like they're rushed. There's usually a, a, a meeting at the at the end of the day, kind of go over what what needs to be gone over to be successful no that's cool and can you maybe share what that uh gold medal game was like uh in the open finals there uh this past year what sort of you felt that day and sort of what that day looked like well that day was tough so i if anyone on soccer listens to this they'll roll their eyes i hurt my toe in the semifinals turf toe so i think it was austin von alton defender on ring Gave me a flat tire, you know, and someone like steps on your heel while you're running. Yeah, yeah. And I jammed my toe so bad. It's, we're almost a year later and it still hurts. I, I, I've done everything I can to get rid of this. Obviously some sort of damage in there. Maybe you'll come to find out I'm not a big doctor guy. You're not technology either though, so it's, <laughs> it's okay. I'm a free child. It's a, it's a made up last name. I'm just, I'm, I'm almost raised from the dirt in Eugene. So it just kind of came out of nowhere. You know, no family lineage or anything. Yeah, so that next day was a bummer because I was playing really well and my toe hurt really bad. It hurt to warm up and I was pissed. But the game itself, you know, it's kind of crazy. It's during the day. The semis are always at night and that's why the college and club semis are always the best games. And then they have these stupid day games that are like boring and hot and windy. Bright sun. (laughs) Bright sun and no one wants to go because they all have been consuming something the night before so the less fans and it's more windy and it's always hotter and it's just like it's such a so lame it's a letdown in that regard for me personally being only my second finals that i had been in after that i'm um, getting second 2015 with oregon it was an incredible experience i kind of decided that i wasn't gonna let the moment be bigger than me i think i've i've allowed that to seep in in the past so i kind of took a very like pragmatic and realistic approach to it the injury, I think, maybe helped me have a distraction, but also, I think, frustrated me more than I would have been. But yeah, it's a, it's a wild game to go and be in front of the crowd and get your names called and go line up and have the whole <laughs> shebang and have the four observers instead of two observers and, you know, the sideline injury tents right there next to you. You have, you have everything at your disposal. 
But once you're in it, you go in and out of losing yourself. Obviously, you perform best if you're not thinking about it, but it is difficult. You know, I'll have three points in a row where I'm not thinking about what's going on, and then I'll be on the sideline and I'll see someone in the crowd I know. I'll see a big group, or, you know, I'll need to go to the injury tent, the, the sideline tent, and I'll go sit in there, and then I kind of take it all in, and then then you walk back out onto the field, and it feels you feel small, and then you kind of have to work your way back into being present again. So yeah, it was a it was an amazing experience, and uh, I'm I'm happy that it turned out the way it did. I still haven't really watched the game except for once, so I'm still pretty upset that they made such a big comeback. I would have loved to have just <laughs> annihilated them and kind of put a stamp on what I thought was one of the best seasons by by a team, at least in recent memory. Of course, every champion is going to say that, but we we won a few tournaments this year and only lost one sanctioned game, so I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, so the game itself was a little frustrating. The comeback was was frustrating, but were you nervous at all towards the end when they were when uh, Machine was making that comeback? You know, I I spent all year saying I knew we were going to win because in two thousand in two thousand eighteen against Pony, I thought that game was winnable, and I think that the whole Nationals we were imposing our will, maybe too much. So I know we got a bad Spirit score. <laughs> But it was the first time I'd been on a team that was really pushing the envelope as far as like not letting, not sitting back, letting the game come to us, letting see how our opponents play. Like it, we felt very confident. Um, and then that pony game happened, and everyone could just feel it subside. And um, me personally, I could feel that. And I kind of told myself that was gonna be the last time I ever let that happen because <sighs> I've let it happen too many times, too many times mm. in, in my career. So when that comeback was happening, you know, I, I like I said, I had spent all year saying. You know, it, it is what it is. You just have to operate in the moment as best you can. That was kind of Sockeye's identity with, with the Abyss. Some people have probably read or heard about the Abyss. And so when it was happening, I was like, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Ultimate's a game of runs. The only time I really did think that we might lose was after Vaughn got that layout D. Oh, that's a crazy block. <laughs> I remember backpedaling. You know, I was, I was finding a second Canner was guarding me, and I started backpedaling looking for Canner. And I was just like, damn, <laughs> I was just like, this can't be how it ends. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I let that passing thought go by. And so, yeah, there was there was one scary moment. And it was that, you know, you go back and watch the film. Joe White could have caught that that sky uh, that Kurt threw him a high stall count. And they were going upwind. Kurt just bombed it like 50 yards. Joe didn't catch it, thankfully. But I didn't even realize how close he was in the moment. And I didn't even realize that that was a tie ball game. I went back and watched the film and I'm like, yo, he got his hand on that. And I was at like 11s. They score up wind. I think, I think they win. So, you know, it's a lot closer than I remember, honestly, after watching it. I think that's why I don't like watching it. Because the feeling I have from that game was a wire-to-wire win. But when you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, Machine really could have won that game. <laughs> well, that's funny. Thanks for sharing all those things. And we're going to move to segment three here. Uh, some misconceptions. So people are going to have some certain views of you or ultimate or so I'm going to leave this section open for you here. Uh, what are some misconceptions you've heard either about yourself or about the sport or about elite level club ultimate, whatever you want to share there. Some common misperceptions about me. So, I mean, obviously there's one that is, I am angry and unhappy all the time, which is true a little. I just have a lot of pride it's a good and bad thing. I take a lot of pride where I'm from. You know, I, I, I still rep South Eugene. I always talk about my high school. I still rep Oregon. So a lot of pride in those Rhino guys. You know, I stayed and watched that pony game after a bunch of my rest of my team went back to the house. So it just it, it matters to me a lot. And I think that I have always taken the responsibility to represent where I'm from well. And I think in taking a lot of pride in that, I have probably represented where I'm from poorly in some cases <laughs> because I take put so much responsibility on myself to do so. Um, but I really want success for, you know, um, the people that I play for, play with and the places that I represent. I think it's important. And I think that's what drives me. So I think a big misperception is that maybe I don't think there's a big misperception for why I play. Uh, some people might say that I play for myself, whether the move to Sockeye or um, mm -hmm. the fact that I, there have been years where I haven't been as successful. And so maybe I'm playing a, a game that is catering to you know my personal success. I don't think that's really a, a perception, but if it is, I, I I hope to disprove it here. In that, uh, yeah, what re really drives me is watching my teammates have success in the places I'm from be, to be represented well. 
And so I take a lot of pride in doing that. So I think in doing so, I create a lot of angst and passion that comes out. It comes out in various ways. But I think for the most part, everyone who's played with me recognizes that for what it is and 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 why it comes out that way. Um, and even some of my competitors, I think, even if I haven't played with them, I think at this point in my career know that. But I, I think if you haven't played with me or played against me enough, there might still be this idea that uh, that I'm playing for some other reason or that I'm just a competitive jerk. <laughs> Yeah, maybe if someone just watches the Callahan video and, and nothing else, for, perhaps. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I for a long time I used to care about what, what people said or the way they thought, and now I feel like I have done enough in my career, both playing on the field and showing people who I really am, but then off the field, even in, in things like this. You know, I, I think being honest and vulnerable and realistic I think I think your true self gets across eventually, and so I, I think that that has. And now, at an older age, I also recognize that there's stuff that I have done and stuff that I still continue to do. You know, I got in trouble this year against the Ring at U.S. Open. That you know puts me in hot water, and I have to be able to deal with the consequences. And I can't just say, you know, that's not me. I think another one that bothers a lot of people like to think that I'm a flashy player, and I think that that bothers me. That that misperception bothers me more than <laughs> more than the jerk, more than being a jerk. <laughs> Yeah, because I actually, a lot of my game, I think, is rooted in doing the small things, doing the small things right. You know, Jay at Oregon was a big no turnovers. And so I think I'm a pretty low turnover player for my usage rate and, how you know, how much I play, how much I get the disc, the skill level of, that I have. And I think I'm a, a relatively low turnover player when it comes to, when it comes to when it comes to my role on a team and in, in, in ultimate in general. But also, you know, the small things. I take a lot of pride in defense. I take a lot of pride in playing smart defense and team defense. I take a lot of pride in, in spacing the field and being a secondary cutter. And I take a lot of pride in clearing out of the backfield and creating break space. And just small things like that that I think are what contribute to me being both a successful individual and someone who can contribute to team success. But people seem to think that I'm flashy. The throw and go. I had, I, you know, there's a lot of layout Ds from when I was younger. I was a ferocious little kid who loved to just hit the deck. You said you're old now, so. I don't lay out nearly as much. I, I, I'm trying to get back to it. I keep saying that to Trent. I'm like, man, I haven't laid out since I was 25 now. Yeah. So I think there's this idea that there's a certain flash and a lack of substance to my game. I found that to be the opposite. I found it to be untrue. And I think. I think being on a lot of the streams probably helps push that narrative. I think just the fact that I have been on so many streams, so so many people have seen my game, makes it easier to analyze or criticize or just say that this person is flashy because there are so many highlights, because they've been caught, because mm -hmm. they've been caught at a higher rate than others, because they've had the virtue of growing up in the media age and playing in the media age. So no, I, I think that that is a common perception that, that, it, that I have a flashy game because I actually kind of root my identity in, in doing the, the grit. So what, let's see, flashy player, and I'm a jerk. And then the last one is championships, defining someone's career. I guess that's not a misperception or misconception. Like, I do only have one championship. <laughs> that is fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's not like a, a miss, uh, yeah, a misinterpretation of that. I get bothered about it in mainstream sports, too. Obviously, if you're winning a lot of championships and you're doing it as one of the better players or a leader on a team, then that should give credit to who you are as a player. But I don't necessarily think it should detract. And obviously I say that as someone who only just won his first championship. <laughs> so I need someone else. I need Kurt to come in here or Bo to come in here and back me up and say they have the same, they have the same idea of, of that. That is all to say, you know, I guess if you watch NBA basketball, like, Damian Lillard right now is being treated a lot like a superstar. And I think it's because a lot of people are drawn to what he's doing. And what he's doing is, you know, he's a leader on and off the court. He creates incredible team culture. He puts everything he has into into a franchise. Uh, you know, says, I'm going to give you my blood, sweat, and tears. He, he And he plays incredible basketball. And I think a lot of people are like, why is he being treated like a superstar? You know, he's been swept in the playoffs the last three years, yada, yada, yada. And I think he's starting to transcend all of the – what we think about, you know, like, what's your playoff winning percentage, you know, like, how have you been swept three years in a row, if you're a close, you know, if you're a closer, you have no championship, you know, and it's this idea that it's like, he is bigger than that. And I think that's what makes him a, a, a new age superstar. He's kind of above that. So I guess that's all to say that I wouldn't really trade 
all the success that I've had in Ultimate for more championships. And I don't even think that I would be seen as a better player necessarily. You know, I, I don't think any ulti world rider or competitor who I've competed against or or whoever is making this narrative would say if only Dylan had three more championships, he would be better or seen as better, you know, because that's just not true. I'd be the same the same player. Maybe in retrospect in 20 years, that would be cool. But point is, like, I think my buddy made this point that it's like, you know, I made semis three years in a row and then finals at Oregon. I'm going to pick on Jimmy a little bit. He had one semifinal appearance and then he won gold his, his fifth year. Dope. I, I am jealous of his championship. He also got ousted in pre-quarters three times. That's not to so say fine. that he had a bad ultimate or, yeah. or college career. That, that's to say, like, you know, my buddy, I was, I, I reminisce about all, all the times that I choked with Oregon with all my Oregon buddies every once in a while. And, you know, someone raised a good point. He's like, would you trade four semifinal runs for one championship and four pre-quarter exits? And I'm like, no, probably not. Why would I want to be out on day two? Why would I want to exist in a world where I never even had a sniffing shot at a championship? But every year that we played and competed, we had a, we had an opportunity to win. And so that's held against me <laughs> and that's held against Oregon. So yeah, I think both narratives can be true. I think we failed in big moments, but I think both narratives can be, can be absolutely true. And that is that we were always competitive. And I think that that's just true for me as a player is that I think for the most part, I've been competitive and, and, and always been relevant and always been there and had ample opportunity. And so I think my, my small conversion rate or lack of success in that opportunity is what's held against me, but I don't think I would trade that for a different career where I maybe punched hard once or twice, but didn't have the same uh, opportunity year in and year out. So it's just that kind of consistent success of almost greatness. <laughs> just consistent. Near, near, near perfection. <laughs> yeah, it's a consistent almost there is a career that I think is should be valued and a career that I w wouldn't trade because it created a lot of big moments and a lot of learning opportunities. And I've been there, I've been there time and time again. And so finally got it, finally got, finally got one. And hopefully that kind of puts that narrative to rest. But if I hadn't gotten it, I don't think it would change the way people should see me as a player, but you know, that's just what I say. Maybe. That's <laughs> how so you make your bed and lie in it. Um... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So last question here of this segment, you've talked about being the most, one of the most streamed ultimate players, if not the most streamed ultimate player kind of in this new media age. How do you try to keep yourself level-headed with that when you go to tournaments and people recognize you, especially maybe youth players or whoever? Is that something you ever think about? Because you also not just represent your team, but also potentially the sport, right? I think about it in that I want to come across as just another ultimate player. And that's what's important to me because the small amount of acclaim and kind of celebrity status I've gotten from Ultimate, you know, was given to me by Ultimate because of Ultimate. You know, I would not have had this experience as a person if it wasn't for the sport of Ultimate. And, you know, it's funny to like have that mild success and then now I haven't graduated or now I'm going to go work in the warehouse. And it's like, not that people who don't graduate from college or people who work in warehouses are any lesser in life than anything else. But it's just this idea that like, I'm a, a pretty normal average dude outside of ultimate. <laughs> so to come to enter that, you know, the, the space that I occupy an ultimate and to not treat it just like exactly who I am outside of ultimate would be insincere and would not really be kind of paying back or giving back you know, the gifts that I've gotten from Ultimate, which would be to take it for granted. So I think about it in that regard. And, and you know, I think one of the, the most flattering things someone told me was like WUGC. I'm reading about WUGC on Twitter or something. And someone mentioned that they found that Team USA was mildly standoffish. And the only person who came across as a genuine dude was me. And that's not to boast or brag about that, but that made me feel like, I was occupying precisely that space with intention and doing it well, mm -hmm. um, especially because that's a common misperception of me would be that I would be the opposite. So ultimate Twitter helped uh, dispel that, that misconception, maybe. Well, they just helped, you know, it was one person with maybe four likes, but it, the fact, yeah. you know, the, the fact that I'm able to read that and see that there is truth to the way I feel like I carry myself and, and that 
the kind of things that I think are important and the intentionality I take to the way I carry myself throughout a big tournament like that, that I'm doing it at least right for one person. <laughs> but yeah, and, and so that's kind of where I take it. And, you know, I also, we played in 2017, the World Games team talked about how we were going to be a leader on the world stage. And I think my biggest contribution to that was like, yeah, to be a leader is to just be to be yourself you know i don't i didn't want to go into that world games experience being like we're not going to call fouls on another team or we're going to not contest or we're not going to let emotion get to us and and mm -hmm. and have have an honest like experience where maybe you get pissed off about a call because we're already beating a team 10 to 3 and i think i think that that is contrived and disingenuous and i think it's is exactly how you get sucked into seeing yourself as bigger than the sport or it's some sort of celebrity status or team USA, some sort of celebrity team. And I think actually being more grounded and having those honest interactions, even if it might paint us in a bad light, even if it means that I am a little too physical or, or whatnot, or get in an argument after a call. I think that that actually leaves a lasting impression that these people are just normal people. They're just like being genuine and just playing as hard as they can kind of thing. Totally. And so that is, that is kind of what the only part of my role in the sport that I think about before I go to a tournament is like, how do I want to come across, I suppose. But aside from that, you know, the, the, <laughs> I don't know how you put it, but yeah, the mild, the mild celebrity status of a youth player knowing me or, or a player who is now in college who's just made a roster for the first time, or even if it's someone that I've played against for years who we have mutual respect for each other, that, that, that doesn't really phase me, nor do I think about it all that much. But I sit back every once in a while and think about kind of how crazy it is that there are just people around the world who know my name. That's a cool experience that is unique to being successful in a certain field. And I happen to have ultimate Frisbee to be that field. Ample amount of people experience that in any field. Yeah, in, in different fields where they're good at, yeah, for sure. Totally. So it's it, it is what it is. But you know, I was throwing with my girlfriend at, at the at the lake. She doesn't play frisbee. She's been around it enough. She went to Oregon. But we were thrown at the lake and there are, you know, maybe fifty or a hundred people around like the whole lake. Don't worry. COVID, we're social distancing. <laughs> no one have to report you, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm just gonna make a joke here. And it'll be a little conceited, but it was funny because I was just sitting there and I was throwing and I was, it was right after that, you know, the whole composite ulti-world rankings came out and I was texting Jimmy and I was like, take that sucker. <laughs> you know, it's a joke. Like Jimmy, Jimmy, like for the love of God, he wasn't the best ultimate player in the world for one freaking year and he's just getting absolutely annihilated. <laughs> they're, they're like the expectations for him are like, you have to be the best ever, every year or else we're going to rank you 10th. Like. <laughs> Uh, poor guy. But yeah, no, so I was talking talk to Amy and I was like, it is kind of cool to think about that I'm the best at what we're doing in this whole part, you know, <laughs> like that I'm, that I'm just better than all these people at one specific thing. And it's so, yeah, that is all to say that I, I, I feel, I feel very humbled and I, I feel very honest and intentional about how I interact with people in this community. But at the same time, obviously there is a, there is a small amount of recognizing the success and that I've had in the sport and basking in it a little bit, even if it's with my girlfriend at the, at the lake. <laughs> so we're going to move to segment four here, rapid fire. My first question for you is name your top three sports teams and athletes of all time. Oh mama sports teams and athletes of all time. Okay. Well, I don't really watch the NFL and haven't for a long time just because I kind of got out of it. I only have enough space in my mind for, for other things but uh but jerry rice i love jerry rice growing up jerry rice and and jeff garcia and and Terrell owens that, that 49ers like three years so they overlapped um, i don't know why i have such an affinity for that squad so jerry rice has always been near and dear to my heart reggie miller even though he's a terrible announcer has always been like i love reggie i love that pacers team like in 2002 <laughs> three and four god i could just i could just name them all. Pedro Stoyakovich is like a weird person that I like love from that Sacramento Kings team. I love Pedro. I don't know why he's like my dude, but, but closer to home, like Aaron Brooks and Dennis Dixon and Brandon Roy are probably like three of those guys that I, that I just like, I love. And Luke Jackson, those are all guys who played for the Blazers and Ducks for anyone who doesn't know, you know, the Blazers, obviously the Ducks, I don't, I don't stray too far from 
too far from home. The 49ers were my NFL team when I watched the NFL. Pacers for some reason, the Kings for some reason. I think because they were competing yeah. when the when the Kobe Lakers were good. So uh, second question here, what's your favorite sports memory of all time as a player and then as a fan? Uh, okay, so as a fan, I went to a uh, Blazer game against the Rockets in 2010, I think. Uh, no, 2009. Yeah, it was a close game all the way through. I love Brandon Roy. He's he's one of my all-time faves. And uh, he hits a little he hits a little turnaround against Ron Artest, I think, with like 1.2 seconds left to go up two. And then the ball gets advanced after a timeout because uh, they can do that in the NBA. And, and they inbound it to Yao Ming and Yao catches, turns and shoots from the baseline and Brandon fouls him. So he makes the game winner and then he fouls Yao Ming after he, and Yao hits it. So it's like everyone in the stadium, like I'm in high school at the time. And so I don't get to go to very many Blazer games. And yeah, this, the wind is sucked out of the whole stadium. And Yao hits the free throw to go up one and 0.8 seconds left. And then, yeah, that's the, we advanced the ball off a timeout and that's the Brandon Roy 30 footer where he's fading away. It was an incredible experience. And now Damien hits 30 footers like it's his, well, it is his job, but he hits them like it's a layup. Oddly enough, I also had tickets to the Damien Lillard game winner against Houston from the, almost the exact same spot. Oh, really? That's crazy. That was a crazy moment. Yeah, I had tickets to that game too, but I gave them up because it was the night before regionals my senior year of college. So me and my buddy both had tickets. We were roommates and we were both captains. And we told Jay and Jay said, you know, you do what you think is best for the team. That's how he put it. <laughs> oh, the guilt, the guilt right there. <laughs> so we sold our tickets and we watched the game with the team in our hotel. And Damien hit that shot. And I've never been so mad happy. <laughs> I could have been there. I could have been there. And at the Brandon Roy game, I would have had the two best shots in Blazer history until last year over PG. Yeah, it was awesome. But uh, my favorite moment. As a player, as a player, you know, the one that sticks out to me for some reason, well, not for some reason, it's on a crazy play. I think, I think when I throw Adam Reese, the game winner against Florida State to make finals in 2015, finally get over the semis hump. Anyone who knows me personally knows my forehand huck is my kryptonite. I just can't throw it very far, but I do a good job hiding it, I think. Well, now you've been exposed, so. I've been exposed. Well, I've been working on it. It's a lot. I was going to say my second favorite moment is a is a huck that I, a forehand huck that I throw Trent this year in semifinals. Yeah, I just think that that throw, if you could see what was traveling on that disc, like just carried so much weight <laughs> from my shoulders off of like just far as far away from me as possible. And by as far away, I mean like forty five yards, like my max distance. Like <laughs> just go that direction. But, you know, it was an effortless throw. I didn't think about it. A lot of times I think about my hucks because I want to be low turnover, and I'm not, at least at the time, I wasn't the best hucker. I've, I've improved. But, you know, I, I didn't think about it. It just kind of was in motion. It was effortless. It, it didn't let the weight of the moment get to me. You know, it was late in the game in semis after, you know, losing three years in a row. Uh, and so I just think that that was a big moment for me maturing as a player, honestly. So maybe not maybe not the the most exciting or spiciest take i could have probably talked about a you know a block somewhere some crazy achievement on the world stage but i think that was um i think that was my favorite ultimate moment when i close my eyes and think about some of the success i've had i always think about that throw no that moment uh means something to you so appreciate you sharing that so you have one last meal to eat on earth what are you having for your appetizer main course dessert and drink Okay, well, for my main course, it's definitely something to do with pasta. I love everyone. Anyone who knows me knows I love pasta. I eat pasta all the time, and it's probably bad. And I should probably learn how to cook something else because I'm 29. Um, it's not just craft dinner, though, is it? No. <laughs> I will make you. I If you come to Eugene, I will make you any assortment of pasta a la Dylan. That's <laughs> Casa la Dylan right there. Yeah, I would have said pesto, and I don't really care about the protein or what else is in it, but I'm also, I love Parmesan cheese. You get the idea. Anything savory, Parmigiani, not red sauce. I'm a big, I'm a big uh, rigatoni pasta guy or linguine. So that's all to say I'm not going to give you a direct answer, but you get the gist. Dessert, I'm a pretty big cold treats guy. I'm a simple man. I will just have ice cream, peanut butter, chocolate ice cream. Go. But I also actually like Adam's peanut butter in vanilla ice cream with a little chocolate. And then let's see my drink of choice. 
You can choose alcoholic and non-alcoholic if you want. <laughs> Probably go with a margarita, even though that doesn't really go with pasta. But I will down as many margaritas as I can before whatever happens to me after this last meal on Earth. And then uh, appetizer, appetizer, appetizer. Oh, man. Well, all I can think about right now is gyoza from a place called Toshi's Ramen in, in Eugene. So I'll just go with nice. Toshi's gyoza <laughs> as my as my last appetizer. <laughs> Shout out Toshi. There you go. Hopefully you get a sponsorship. So, Dylan, thanks for uh, coming on the pod today, taking time out of your uh, schedule there to, to chat on the pod. Do appreciate it. If our audience wants to find out more about you, where can they find you? I guess on the frisbee field. How's that? No, I I'm on Instagram and and Twitter. Although I'm thinking about deleting Twitter at the Spikezilla. Maybe you just change the handle. <laughs> Mainly just get get upset about things regarding frisbee. Instagram is a little more fun. I, I share a little more about my personal life. You know, there's stuff with my dog and my girlfriend and my family, and I I tend to be on there more. I can't remember. Maybe it's just Dylan dot child, but. Really, if you just want to get to know me or contact me, you just do what you did. Find me on one of those apps. Hit me up. DM. Ask someone for my <laughs> phone number. I'll always, I'll always answer. I don't have too little time. Yeah, for those listening, like you can hear, Dylan's not the guy that you might see in the in the, the Callahan video or the stream. So, down to earth, dude. Had a great chat today. So, Dylan, once again, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Helen Stumbos a former Team Canada women's soccer player who was the first Canadian player to score in a World Cup. In this interview, Helen shares about her experiences on the national team and discusses the growth of women's soccer. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at one underscore and underscore only underscore sports, and you can see some of my commenting highlights on YouTube at the channel one and only sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.